The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Christopher Prendergast, Emeritus Professor of Modern French Literature at Cambridge and the author of a new book which, appropriate in this centenary year of the UK publication of Swan's Way, is called Living and Dying with Marcel Proust. Christopher, welcome. Now, by calling your book Living and Dying with Marcel Proust, it gives at least the first impression, oh, this is going to be an entry in, in the Marcel Proust self-help genre. But it's very much not that, is it? Can you talk about what you were trying to do with the book? Yes, yeah, sure. Of course, the uh, it didn't occur to me till really rather late in the day, and notwithstanding the fact that the first chapter of the book is basically uh, an ironic stroke satirical excursus on the concept of therapeutic Proust. It didn't occur to me that the title might resonate in the very direction I was contesting, namely that Proust can be properly and appropriately read as a sort of self-help manual in the arts of living and dying. But, of course, in retrospect, you're absolutely right, Sam, that it inevitably resonates in that direction, or at least it can, and I'm afraid it's too late, I can't do anything about it. But I can assure you that I do not... The first chapter, I hope, makes unambiguously clear, apart from uh, two or three seriously, amazingly exotic tales of therapeutic Proust uh, that I tell, that I do not subscribe to the uh, How Proust Can Change Your Life school of thought. No. These tales are kind of extraordinary, though. <laughs> so, I mean, before we get on to the literary critical stuff, can you, can you tell one? Because you've got three examples of sort of asthma insomnia and addiction that yes. Proust has, has sort of cured. Yes, yes, I do. I mean, they're extraordinary facts in the uh, multidimensional and ever-exotic history of reading Proust. But these three cases stand out that the novel, reading the novel, could have been uh, used to those particular ends. One of them is a story about a student, contemporary of mine, when I was myself a student at Oxford, who suffered from chronic insomnia, which is one of the great afflictions of both Proust's own life and uh, in the novel itself. And he discovered that you read a page of Proust at night and you go fast asleep, but it wasn't necessarily intended as a compliment, was it? And then there's the wonderful story uh, I learnt a psychoanalyst friend of mine, her last now dead from COVID, a tale of uh, an acquaintance of hers who suffered from chronic asthma, which is another huge Proustian thing. I mean, it's, Proust suffered from asthma all his life. In the end, it's what killed him. And it figures in many places in the novel, a whole trip around breathing and not being able to breathe. This poor soul suffered from precisely that sort of condition and resolved it by reading Proust to herself out loud. <laughs> How that effected the cure is anybody's guess but it did and then the third one yes is so-called standout syndrome that you fall in love with something beautiful you fall in love with the category of the beautiful and can't unhook yourself from it this happened to Stendhal when he first visited a 
spectacularly beautiful church in Florence. Um, never really recovered from it. And my example was of someone who read Proust and fell in love with the aesthetic experience of reading Proust and couldn't stop reading it, and it was ruining her life. And the only solution was to read it over and over and over until she read it and herself into the ground. Now, I think these are terrific tales, but they do not add up to my subscribing to a general view of the function of reading Proust as therapeutic. Yes, I mean, you, you do set your sort of set your direction against a certain chrome-pated philosopher in that. But there's a sort of impatience throughout the book with people, I mean, you said at one point, witterings about Proust, with with people either making academic over-readings that, that sees him as a harbinger of quantum physics, or, you know, there's a whole set of, you know, what you saw as a sort of straight philistinism of Kingsley Amos's reading of him. I mean, what is it, do you think, because Proust obviously is, is in some ways more discussed than read. What are the, the central sort of misconceptions that people have about Proust that you're seeking to sort of set right in this book? Ah, well, yes. I mean, with all due respect there, Sam, I, it's true that uh, from time to time I home in on what I call witterings, that is to say discussions and descriptions of Proust of which I disapprove, but that's not really what the book is about. I mean, they're very much en passant observations, but I'm perfectly willing to concede that when I do come across these moments that irritate me profoundly, that the irritation shows often in blatantly impolite ways, but I'm afraid I couldn't help myself. I can't help myself when I come across Evelyn War, who's Brideshead Revisited is sometimes described as the English novel most reminiscent of Proust, writing to a friend, I think it was Nancy Mitford, to say that he just started reading Proust and hadn't realised because nobody had told him that Proust is a mental defective and he's a mental defective because he has no sense of time. Now, of all the things you could say about Marcel Proust, that is the one thing that qualifies as, you know, this idiocy of the year. I mean, it's, you know, right at the top of the pops. Now, what am I supposed to do with this sort of material if I'm talking briefly about the English reception of Proust? But I do apologise if I occasionally appear excessively impolite. No, that, that, that gives great salt <laughs> to your work. Um, I, I'm not complaining at all. The, I mean, you've, you've talked about the English reception of Proust, maybe since it's the centenary year. We'll talk a bit about that. Obviously... It was midwifed into English by C.K. Scott Moncrief. And yes. how much did that translation frame and or sort of distort the reception of Proust? Because he was quite a strong translator. He was quite an aggressive translator, wasn't he? He changed a lot. He did. And of course, one can have an argument about the merits of changing the original uh, in order to create a translation that is nevertheless and on the surface paradoxically a mirror image of the original, that in order to respect the original you have to change it. Um, there's a whole debate, some of it quasi-philosophical, to do with the arts of translation around precisely that issue. Scott Moncrief is dead centre of it, and to come straight to the point, as uh, in one of my incarnations as the general editor of the Penguin translation of the novel that came out in 2002, I was always looking over my shoulder back at the original figure 
who is of course Scott Moncrief. Scott Moncrief, in my view, is the hero of the story of the translation of Proust into English. But he doesn't mean to say it is without problems and issues. One of them, the one that's often, the one that is always uh, trotted out, quite rightly, is that there is a tendency to drown some of the sharper and crisper aspects of Proustian style with large dollops of Edwardian purple prose. And that is a standard objection to Scott Moncrief. Nevertheless, I repeat that he is the hero of the translation into English history of Proust. And uh, sometimes, of course, it can go over the top. I can't remember who it was. Oh, yes, I think it was Joseph Conrad, no less, who said that Scott Moncrief's Proust is better than Proust's Proust. <laughs> which is a rather extraordinary view, don't you think? Yes. <laughs> um. Actually, on the, on the subject of translation, briefly, I was intrigued in your preface or introduction, you, say, you, know, you, you acknowledge that you were the general editor or director or whatever your phrase was of the 2002 Penguin edition, but you say, here and there, I've departed from that in my own translations. Is that what Proust would have called esprit de l'escalier? Yes. I have a very difficult relation. Sorry, this is a footnote, but I have a, a semi-traumatic recollection, memory rather, embodied and embedded memory of the expression L'Esprit de l'Escalier, which was once I was, uh, it was after a feast in my college, King's College in Cambridge, and we were all a bit plastered, and the then provost, the famous philosopher Bernard Williams, had a guest and called me over and said, oh Chris, uh, sorry, you're the fellow in French, could you please remind us of the origin and also the meaning of the expression L'Esprit de l'Escalier, and because I was so tanked, I just checked out. And uh, as I left, and he was looking at me as if I should be fired, I was about to leave the room, the common room, and I suddenly remembered what it was, and that Voltaire who invented it, and I went back. <laughs> but it was all a bit late. So I think, uh, sorry, that's a digression. That's a it's got nothing to do embodied with memory, I'll uh, Where were we with L'Esprit de l'Escalier? Oh, I was just saying, did you... You know, you, you've obviously, in the 20 years since you signed off on this, presumably yeah. in some place you've gone, ooh, got that wrong. Oh, the translation. Yeah, well, I think it would be be presumptuous of me to say they got it wrong. Let's call it a difference of view. And there were certain moments, yes, when I was using the translation for which I was re editorially responsible consistently throughout, there were moments when I felt I had to alter this and that. With all due respect to my team of translators, when here and there that happens. But I think all things considered, Sam, if I remember correctly, that it is relatively rare. Yeah. Now, that question of closure leads us on to one of the bigger themes of your book, which is the structure of the novel or set of novels, the shape, and the question of how much it can be said to be sort of finished. How much can it be said to be finished or finishable? Yes. <laughs> well, there are two questions, one about its state and one about its potential. And bear in mind that on his deathbed, Proust was still revising. And he left behind, in, when he died, was, you know, it's the centennial year of his death, as you pointed out, there's just a great heap of manuscripts that his editors had to deal with and the prolonged editorial history of the editorial relationship with the manuscript mountain in the attempt to produce something that would qualify as, quote, a definitive version, has gone on and on and on. I mean, the latest iteration of that, and almost certainly the most authoritative, 
was the second Pleiad edition that came out in the 1990s. And if there is a such a thing as a definitive edition, that's it. Nevertheless, the manuscripts are there. They're in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Some of them that had been assumed lost have recently resurfaced, and the whole debate then starts over again. So I think one can say, when Proust was on was dying, more or less, and he called his housekeeper Céleste, and he hailed her, and she came in, and he said, look, Céleste, I've just written the word fin, the end. Now I can die. Well, yes, it does end. It has an ending. It has a beautiful ending in that final paragraph that swerves down onto the last use appearance of the word temps, the word time, which of course is embedded in the first word of the novel, longtemps, je me suis couché de bonheur, so it's bookended by this word temps, and in that sense it does end. And that business of sweeping round a beautiful long sentence that lands on that final phrase, a sort of syntax holding it off, I mean Proust is sort of famous for these long sentences. I mean, I think you, you write somewhere that, that there's a sort of competition to find the longest and that you can wrap it sort of 16 times around the base of a teacup or something. I mean, no, a bottle of claret. A bottle of claret. I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, no, it's, no, no, it's the spectator's way with measuring. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, of measuring the length of pre sentences. Anyway, yes. Was there some experiment conducted that established that, incidentally? But I'm imagining. I, no, I don't know. I don't know the details of this particular way of going about it, but it's a very striking metaphor. But certainly it highlights what everybody says about Proust. I mean, the thing, this thing about Proust's syntax, which is simultaneously one of the wonders of the Proustian world, these proliferating sentences that gather in bits of the world that would otherwise remain distinct and discrete and separate from one another on the one hand, and on the other hand, people who just find it intolerable. It just overwhelms the reader and they end by giving up. So there's, a, again, a whole issue swirling around Proustian syntax. It won't come to you as any surprise that I'm pro and not con. I mean, I think I think I I think I quoted it in the book. I'm not 100% certain now, but there's that extraordinary moment when Sigmund Freud started to read Proust, and he found Proust's style quote boring, on the mainly on the remarkable grounds that here was an author who was unable to finish his sentences, <laughs> which is probably the silliest claim ever made about Marcel Proust, and that it should come from Sigmund Freud is a staggering fact. It probably actually means that Freud couldn't get to the end of them, which brings us back to the point that you've raised about the, you know, these incredible structures, syntactic structures that proliferate subclauses and metaphorical detours uh, and so on. Now, that, that, that also seems to hold or be analogous, as so much in, in this is analogous, for the structure of the thing as a whole. Because one of the arguments you make, if I understand it, read it rightly, is that, to some extent, the novel is quite straightforward in its treatment of time, that it, it, it moves narrative time, you know, moves forward in a very straightforward, ordinary way, but that what's characterised by is sort of loops and digressions embedded in that. Is that fair? Absolutely right. Spot on, Sam, that it is, there is a sort of, how can I put it, a sort of, a version of quote, modernist Proust in the study of Proust in literary criticism, 
that uh, has Proust as an experimenter with what Proust himself in the novel calls the order of time and the form of time. These are two conceptual phrasings in the novel that are very, very interesting, quintessentially Proustian, and call for a, a lot of analysis and discussion. But the typically modernist way with Proust's way with what he calls the form of time and the order of time is to see him as constantly disrupting it and swerving and looping, as you quite rightly say, detouring, digressing, remembering, flipping back from the present to the past and all the rest of it, and thus burying that key dimension that you have absolutely rightly highlighted, that Proust is a novelist. And that he, as a novelist, he tells a story that has a beginning that moves in a linear dimension through to an end. What happens in the trajectory from the beginning to the end, of course, involves all these breaks and ruptures and detours that you've mentioned. Nevertheless, this is a, an initiation story in the classic tradition of the European novel. Uh, it's a story of the initiation of a young man into his vocation, that of the writer, and it follows, despite all the detours, it follows a straight-line trajectory. Yeah. And is it then a sort of accident, a distortion based on the accident that, you know, Proust arrives in English and dies in the year that modernism breaks in the English language, that, you know, it's the year of Ulysses, it's the year of the wasteland, and that therefore we sort of lazily rope him in and say he's one of those guys. That is such an interesting question, Sam. I have never heard it put quite like that before. The temporality of it, of course, is pertinent. 1922 is the, the talismanic year where literary and cultural histories of modernism are concerned. It's the birth moment, basically. Except, of course, it isn't the birth moment. It is uh, the outcome of forces in the culture that have been at work for quite some time, starting in the late 19th century. So how one historically dates the origins of modernism is very much an open question. So Proust is part of it. I mean, Proust, you know, he was dining with Diaghilev in the Ritz and he was hanging out with these people. Um, he knew what was going on. And uh, some of the more experimental dimensions of his writing style and his way with the form of the novel fit into that, a part of that story. In terms of, again, looking at the, the shape of the book, one of the things that, that to me is most compelling in your book is the way you're able to trace lines of imagery or phrases or words all the way through. I mean, I, I get the impression, maybe this is digitally done now, but that you compose some of these chapters with a concordance at one hand. For instance, you describe it as a phrase, you say, the novel as a whole constitutes a kind of museum slowly converting to a mausoleum that houses an extended Cheeks collection. <laughs> Tell me about the importance of Cheeks in Priest, because yes. it's encyclopedic, this chapter. Uh, so, yeah, uh, well, this is really a point about the method I adopted. It's living and dying, of course, is the guiding, you know, the title is what guided me. And I was uh, very much taken with Andrew Marr's superlatively succinct summary of the recherche as, a, as, a, as a about, so here's a novel about a man reflecting on what it is to be alive. So there's a strong focus in the book on what it is to be alive and whether being alive crucially means the life of the body. 
both its wondrous engagement with the sensory world, but also its deterioration and in the end disintegration and death and the, f the fortunes of this bit of the body that we own our cheeks became one way of illustrating that story. But getting back to your question, uh, in order to tell that chapter, uh, I had to have an absolute command of the behaviour of the word cheeks in the novel. And uh, yes, I used a database called Frontex to track the appearance of certain key words. And so I don't want to make a big fuss about this because keyword analysis in literary studies in its sophisticated forms, what I did bears no resemblance to that. It's, with me, it was just a counting exercise. And I had a database to hand in which I could run the word cheeks through the entire novel and pluck out what I wanted for my own purposes. These, these kind of phrases or ideas that that you find kind of rhyming and chiming through the through this enormous great long text there are various meta i mean metaphor is as you describe at the absolute heart of of the project you know sentence by sentence you know even the metaphorical way in which synesthesia operates but do you see a kind of governing metaphor for how it's constructed. I mean, you you say there's various people who said it's architectural, that it's Euclidean mathematics, that, you know, this, that and the other. But it, you seem to come down on the tapestry side, finally. Is that fair? Well, it's certainly true that uh, of all the images and figures of speech to hand to represent how the novel is made, how it is constructed, the one he takes from, basically, from his reading of Ruskin and the Bible of Amiens, which he translated and so on, that it was constructed like a cathedral. And then the other one that he takes from the world of the realm of sewing and stitching and dressmaking and says it's like stitching something together. The latter is the one that really uh, held my attention and travels out into other domains, related metaphorical domains, and crucially that of the tapestry. So the idea of the novel is the weaving of a network of threads as a threading exercise in a multidimensional sense. I found very appealing, and as you will have noted, I worked the whole thing, if not to death. I mean, you know, it does earn its living in the book, but it's not the only way I go with it. Euclidean mathematics, yes, well, not, not really, but uh, one of the other ways of construing the form of the novel is by way of the deployment of a system, not a system, but just a suite of geometric figures that you can relate back to Euclid as some idiot critic sometimes do. I mean, it's absurd. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely preposterous. Um, the Proust is Euclidean, just as Proust is Einsteinian is absolutely preposterous. But these geometric figures are there, they're explicit, and they do a lot of work, structuring work in the novel the diagonal, the transversal, the horizontal, the vertical, they're all there. Yeah, there's also, I mean, we, we have, thanks to his housekeeper's memoir, a sense of actually how we put these things together. You know, and there's a sort of almost collage aspect, you know, he was there with the glue, yes. wasn't he? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, collage, of course, is one of the uh, central aesthetic and artistic concepts of modernism especially of painting, of course, but uh, also in literature. 
uh, I hesitate to place Proust in that school in the intended sense of the metaphor, but in terms of his working method, yes, it's literally true. He was just gluing bits of paper together. That's why the manuscript world of the Proustian corpus was such a nightmare for his editors. <laughs> now, Celeste, who has, I mean, also appears in the novel as one of the Yes. Kind of really curious things. There are some yes. characters. And at another point, it was a painter was going to appear in the novel. Her name Bonnard was going to be yes. in one of the sections and got sort of cut out. Yes. Uh, why does he put real people into the book, do you think? It's, I don't know, it's the short answer. I mean, it's, it's as if um, the, the incorporation of Celeste it's almost certainly, though we have no proof, because Proust doesn't tell us, but it's almost certainly a homage. This is the woman who basically looked after him in the last years of his life. But it's also playing a game with the rules of fiction. I mean, there's a moment in the novel when Albertine, the, the lady, you know, of the disastrous, catastrophic, paranoid love affair, is being unusually affectionate and intimate with him and at one point calls him oh my Marcel my darling Marcel the narrator then goes on to say if I were to give to myself the name of the author of this book and you think what here we have a fictional narrator stepping outside the world of the fiction onto terms of acquaintance with the author of the fiction and Proust is playing some sort of game here it's as if he's saying, look, the whole thing is just a box of tricks. You do realise that, don't you? And I think the incorporation of Celeste as a character in the novel is consistent with the playing of that game. But it's very, very discreet. As if he's, he's leapfrogged modernism altogether and gone straight to postmodernism in that, in that case. Voila. Um, but, <laughs> yes. but Celeste, obviously, among her many duties, was to bring him his café au lait and his croissant in the morning. Now, one of the kind of marmalade droppers for people who have only a you know, cursory, sort of apocryphal knowledge of Proust will be the, the one thing everyone knows about Proust, that the Madeleine is key. It almost wasn't a Madeleine, was it? It was going to be something else. Uh, well, initially it was going to be uh, a piece of toast, or <laughs> as he called it, a rusk, and that was, was going to be dipped in the cup of tea, and then that's in the manuscript stuff. And then he finally cha he changes his mind and settles on Madeleine, quite wise, uh, all permanently up for grabs, clearly meant something to him. But the thing about the Madeleine moment in the early stages of the opening volume is, is the building block of the entire narrative edifice. I mean, that's it, it's the foundation stone par excellence. And being that, it is, has become a fetishized object. People go to Iliad the real-life place for the fictional Combray, the village at the beginning of the novel where he spent his childhood holidays, and they go straight to the local patisserie to, to, to get some Proust Madeleines. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculously fetishised. So I decided to go to war on behalf of the croissant um, and tell the story of what Proust has to say about croissants and, and coffee, not tea, not lime blossom tea, but café au lait, which was his favourite beverage, and it's quite a tale. Yes, now he was an absolute bastard for his baked goods, wasn't he? Yes. And, of course, let's not forget that in 1920, I think it was, the newspaper L'Intransigeant 
ran a sort of enquête, a questionnaire, with a question they put to various writers and thinkers. If you hadn't been what you are, what would you most like to have been? And Proust's was a baker. <laughs> and I think we have to take that very seriously as one of the great Proustian counterfactuals. If he hadn't been a writer, he would have been a baker. Well, of course he wouldn't, but he certainly would like to have been, and all because of these patisseries that he keeps writing about in the novel. Yes, I mean, you, you describe it some, somewhere that he's, I think it's in the Combray section, that he, he sees these sort of church steeples, and he sees them as brioches in the sunlight. Yes. Yeah, the sun, the sun is shining on one of the spires of the Martinville church, and uh, yes, and uh, it's a Sunday morning when they typically have brioche and madeleine and croissant for breakfast anyway, and so yes, he compares it to a brioche. And he nearly, get, I mean, it nearly had a different name as well, didn't it? Arachet de Tompadou was, was sort of not first on the list. Oh, there were about eight candidates. I can't remember them offhand. Something like the stalactites of the past and and several others that he toyed with. We jettisoned them and ended up with uh, the title that we have. One of the reasons for adopting that as the title, La Recherche du Temps Perdu, well, there are two. One is Recherche has embedded in it a sense of the experimental. It's the, the research aspect of the novel as well as the looking and finding, seeking and finding aspect of it. And of course, there's also there's the double meaning of the word perdu. Perdu means lost, and then recovery and resurrection of times past, but it also means wasted, time wasted, and this vast landscape of sheer waste that is so much part of the journey undertaken by the narrator from childhood through to middle age, where he finally discovers and embraces what he wants to be and become. Yeah. Now, there are, as you say, these sort of lacunae in the text, these sort of narrative black holes. And one of them that's very suggestively you talk about is the deaths and the, the, the vanishing from the manuscript of his mother. Yes. And is that, in your reading of it, in a way, the sort of central emotional object of the book that's... that's almost the one thing that's completely hidden from sight. Yes, I think so. Proust's own relationship, relationship with his own mother was, a, you know, a complicated business. Her death was shattered him. I mean, there are entirely plausible senses in which he never really recovered from the death of his mother, Jeanne Weil, um, or Jeanne Proust, of course, as she became. Uh, the novel is as I say in the book, the novel El Arrochoche is death-haunted. There are many deaths that occur in it, although only two are actually staged. Um, the others are reported, but it is death-haunted, and it ends with one last grand social gathering at the Prince and the Princesse de Guermantes, which is basically the greatest collection in world literature of derelict humanity. I mean, this is these are people who are just about to collapse into the grave. Uh, they're in the antechamber of a cemetery. But the one death that cannot figure in this novel, that is unmentionable, it's not just that it can't be staged, but it cannot even be mentioned in anticipation except that it is, is the death of the mother. The mother just disappears from the narrative at the beginning of the last volume, and we never hear from her again. So that's what I call a black hole. It's a kind of narrative black hole. She just disappears into it. And the, there are hints, as I say, and 
uh, give as an example what for me stands as the most moving sentence of the entire novel is when the mother and the narrator go to Venice together and they visit the Basilica San Marco and the priest writes this sentence if you'd like me to read it out would yes. you? Yes please. Well here it is this for me is the sentence of the novel at least in relation to the question that you've just raised Sam and this is the narrator he's looking back at a past event, the past event is their visit to the Basilica, and writes as follows. The time has now, note this present tense by the way, the temporal structure of this sentence is really, really interesting. The time has now come for me when on remembering the baptistry, I cannot remain indifferent to the fact that there was by my side in this cool twilight a woman clothed in mourning, whose respectful but enthusiastic fervour matched that of the elderly woman who can be seen in Venice in Carpaccio's St. Ursula, and that nothing can ever again remove this red-cheeked, sad-eyed woman in her black veils from the softly lit sanctuary of St. Mark's, where I am certain to find her, because I have reserved a place there in perpetuity alongside the mosaics for her, my mother. Now that is a death-haunted sentence if ever there were one. This is a narrator looking back from a point in time in which his mother is dead and he is grieving and he is creating a kind of cemetery for her. The San Marco in recollection has become a burial site. And so, there you are. Well, I think may maybe the burial site is the place to leave it. Christopher Predicast, thank you very much. Uh, okay, Sam, nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you 